I don't know if you noticed, we, we, we imported our own wall. It's, it's kind of incomplete, but this, this is a wall, and uh, it's pretty good, isn't it? Good work. So thanks to Mark and Lydia for bringing a wall in for us, as we've been spending the last couple of weeks talking out of the book of Nehemiah, which is all about building a wall. So you think it's pretty simple, there's a stone, you put it, there's another stone. So, but for a moment, just imagine that that, that represents you, because last week we talked about us being living stones. How, how, do you, how do you best connect into the wall? You best connect into the wall by the people, the other stones that are around you. Yeah? The wall isn't this sort of amorphous thing that's sort of big and general. It's actually the connections that are next to you that make it into a wall. And if everybody connects well, you suddenly have something that is substantial. This could also be every time you pray, something happens. Every time we worship together, something moves and is shifted and happens. Every time a relationship that's got awkward is resolved, there's a building happening. Every, every time we, get, we raise up some leaders, something's happened. Every time we get deeper into God and we understand better who we are, another, another stone, another brick's got stuck into the wall and it gets bigger and bigger and higher and higher and if we had more we'd, ha- we'd, we'd build this thing right up and there'd be no gaps and that's what then the world sees. You may be in the wall and it may not be obvious to you because you're, you're here but if you're a brick out here you see a wall. That's kind of a summary of the last two weeks. Jesus is building his church. It's a a building process. It's a process of connection. It's a process that he's called us into. And and our job in this theme we're talking about legacy is to receive what we have, the condition of the wall as we find it, and to improve on it so that the people around us and the people that come after us inherit better, further, further, and an improved version of what we had. Yeah? That, that's fundamentally what we're talking about here, that, that we receive something, that we, we value it enough, and we celebrate it, but we realize it's not the end product, so we know we have, in our generation, in our slot of time on this planet, we have a responsibility to do something with what we have and make it better for those that come behind us, the people that we are discipling, the people that we are seeking to raise up, our children, our grandchildren, even people we will never see. It's a different kind of perspective to think, I'm improving things for now for people I may never see. That's building an ongoing, an ongoing legacy. And, and we've talked a lot about the glorious church. It's a passion of my heart is the reason we're even here, really, is the glorious church. And, and the, the, in a sense, the wall isn't complete. The world is yet to see, I believe, in, in, in Scotland and in the UK, the glorious church in full triumph, in full display. But it will, and we are about doing that very thing. And a glorious church is full of the presence of God. It's full of honor. It's full of beauty. It's full of wisdom. It's full of resources. It has impact and influence in the cities and nations in which it stands. And as you, from that description, you can tell we're still on the way to doing such a thing. Yeah? 
There's still work to do. We've inherited a wall that's maybe so high. We've inherited a few gaps. So there's plenty of building to be done. There's plenty of progress to be made. And uh, we've talked quite a bit about that. This week, I'm actually going to talk about something we rarely do. The title of this message is The Enemy's Seven Tactics Revealed. The Enemy's Seven Tactics Revealed. Um, I don't think it's our job to focus a lot on what the enemy's doing, but it's also foolish to not think there is an enemy. And the Apostle Paul tells us that actually we are in a war. It's not like a war. You can't opt out of it. Every believer, as they come to Christ, actually has swapped sides in the war. They've moved out of darkness into light. But there is warfare and our warfare isn't against people it's not against the people around us it's not against people in the church our warfare Paul says in Ephesians 6 is a spiritual one for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against cosmic powers over this present age against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Every single one of you, when you wake up in the morning, you're in a war against that lot. So it would be good to know what the tactics are. Is that, is that fair? Anybody want to win the war? Anybody want to be an overcomer rather than be overcome? All right, we, we have some recruits for the army. Uh, I think one of the things that we, we need to see is actually his strategies are on repeat. So we're looking back here hundreds and hundreds of years to the days of Nehemiah, to the restoration of a wall. And we're using it as a metaphor for building the church, for building principles, for building lives together, for, for growing something awesome, to build the city of God in the city of man. As Jesus said that, we were a city on a hill, a light that couldn't be hidden. We, we corporately, individually, you can't be a city. Together, you are a city. There's complexity, resources, glory, wisdom flowing out of you as a corporate entity into the city in which we find ourselves. And that we have an enemy and he doesn't like what we are doing. That's the first point to note, we have an enemy who does not like what we are about. And if you turn your Bibles with me, we're going to go to Nehemiah and we're going to just tap into a verse in chapter 2 and then we're going to turn through to chapter 4. But Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah says in verse 9, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But then, but when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. It displeases the enemy greatly when we seek the welfare of the city of God, of the church that Jesus is building. When we start to partner with Jesus, who is building a glorious church, the enemy is greatly displeased, to put it mildly. Why would he be so upset? 
I would like to suggest to you there's two reasons. One is that a solid building is less vulnerable to his attack. Sound beliefs, great relationships, good building, a lack of broken walls and broken gates actually creates a safe environment that it's much harder for the enemy to penetrate and pollute. If you know who you are, where you are, where you fit, and it's glued together well, you know what? He hates it because there is no easy way in. Lots of holes, lots of gaps, lots of rubble equals. He can walk in and out of any gap he pleases, any time he pleases. This enemy does not want the wall built. And I'd like to suggest to you the, the second and probably the more important reason is if you flip it the other way, a broken wall is vulnerable to his attack. A well-built city means he's vulnerable to their attack. If you read carefully what Jesus said about building his church in Matthew 16, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The New Testament uses all these different metaphors and ideas what the church is. It's a body, it's a family, it's, it's a building it's, it's a temple and there's something mobile about this building. And the idea is that the Jesus-built church starts to move towards the gates of hell. What are the gates of hell? Biblically, the gates are where government sat. So the church that's well-built, that's alive and kicking, as it were, starts to move its influence towards the gates of hell and they will not prevail against the influence of the church. The way that darkness will be removed from our environment, from our cities, is actually being part of a well-built Jesus church that is demolishing the authorities of darkness that have set themselves up in opposition to the purposes of God. Just a few people taking pot shots will not do the job. And Jesus goes on to say that he's given the church the keys of the kingdom of heaven and what they bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What they loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Or some translations say what they loose on earth will already have been loosed in heaven. The church is the authority of God manifest in the earth. He's given us the job of mopping up the victory he has already won. If you like, on the cross, the victory was won. We are in the business of enforcing the victory. The church of Jesus Christ, the church he is building, is what will display his wisdom, his manifold wisdom to the heavenly realms. He says in Ephesians 3 verse 10, the church, not somebody else, not another institution, organization. It's the church that is going to take the gates of hell off their hinges. So of course, of course, the enemy is not going to want them to succeed because he can no longer threaten them and then he becomes threatened. The church is the most threatening thing on the planet to the powers of darkness. And that's why it's been so warred against, so maligned, so confused, so broken down. Because when the enemy wants to destroy something, remember he's not omnipotent, he's not omniscient. He gets all these big guns and he tries to point them at 
the churches that are emerging that are a threat to him because he knows what some of the church don't know is that they are the biggest threat to his influence on the earth. And sometimes the church kind of wanders around like, oh, well, you know, I just show up on Sunday. Listen, this is warfare. We just did warfare. Not because we sang warfare songs, but because the King of Glory came. Where he is, the enemy cannot be. The more the presence of God is manifest, the less space and room there is for the enemy to function. So the more his church rises up and moves with his presence, welcomes his presence, is motivated by his presence, releases his presence to others, the less room there is for the enemy to function because the more light that comes, the less darkness there is. We came in here this morning, it was a bit gloomy, and actually there was a few extra lights to turn on. When we turned the lights on, there was no argument in the room with the gloominess. It just left. When the church gets switched on, when the church is present, filled with the presence of God, there is no battle between dark and light. Light has already won. So the enemy is concerned. He is worried, he is anxious that somebody is thinking about the welfare of this city, the welfare of this building, and he sets about he sets about opposing them in some obvious and some subtle ways. So this morning is seven ways. I'm revealing to you, like, da-da, out of the scriptures here, seven ways in which the enemy seeks to stop the building of the church of God on the earth. Because he hates the church. He doesn't just dislike it. He hates the church. He hates you and he doesn't want you to succeed. He doesn't want any church in this city to succeed or this nation. And we want to see him defeated and do a great job of building a glorious house for Jesus. Is that not true? Amen. So we're going to turn to chapter 4 of Nehemiah. Chapter 4 and chapter 6 have got the sort of key, key moments of, of, of strategy and opposition. And we probably won't get time to do 6, but we'll, we will at least give them a mention. So Nehemiah chapter 4, you found it on your Bible device. Verse 1, now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. See, he's threatened. You get enthusiastic about church, the enemy's already scared. He will do anything, as you'll see, to discourage you about building the church in the life of God. And he jeered at the Jews and he said, in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubble and burned ones at that? And Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was beside him, said this, Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes on that, he will break down their stones on their wall. And Nehemiah says, Hear, O God, for we are despised 
turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. The best answer to provocation. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had a mind to work. And when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. And then in Judah, this is the people of God, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop their work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space, Behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people in their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. (laughs) What a great chapter. As you go on, you find that they've got some like soldiers in the gaps, but some of them are working with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. They're ready in case the attack comes because until this thing is finished, they are vulnerable to being overrun. I love it. That's just awesome, isn't it? But we just built the wall. We just got on with it. So what's going on? How are they being attacked? So this stuff, just a reminder, we're not battling with people. We're battling with a spirit realm. Our spirit realm can work through people, and people can express some pretty unkind things, but fundamentally, you can wake up in the morning and have a thought in your head that didn't come from you because the enemy is out to discourage you. Are you you with me? So I'm identifying not just what people will do, but what moods and feelings and atmospheres may start to happen around you in order to press in and bring discouragement to you in your part of the building process. Seven tactics, and they really haven't changed much in the millennia. He doesn't have a new playbook Number one, attack the identity of the builders. What does he say? Verse two, he said in the presence of his brothers, what are these feeble Jews doing? He's despising them. He's cursing them with a view that they're feeble. Cast doubt on their strength. And he wants them to believe they don't have the energy to do the task. It's the classic. Who are you, people of God? 
Are you feeble? I was expecting an answer. If you wake up in the morning with feelings of inadequacy and feelings of disqualification, feel stupid or small, it could be that you're beginning to tune in to the, 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 the negative atmosphere, the negative broadcast of our enemy who wants to tell us we don't have what it takes to do the very thing the Lord has called us to do. Start to wear away at who you believe you are. He starts to gnaw away at your sense of identity in God. He starts to try and bring doubt on the fact that you could actually do the things God has called you to do. God will never call you to do something he doesn't give you the ability to do. That's a lie. He wants to create and sustain a victim mentality because it stymied the church for centuries. Oh, the devil's too big and we are too small. That is not the story of the Bible. The devil and God are not even equals. And he lives in you. Christ lives in you. We're sons, we're co-heads who by the grace of God rule and reign in life. We're not grasshoppers. They're the grasshoppers. We're the giants. So that's number one. He attacks the identity of the people who are called to do the work and cast doubt on their strength. Because he wants them to believe things about themselves that aren't true, but then they become disabled not because they are lacking, but because they believe they're lacking. Let me say that again. They become disabled in the task, not because they are lacking, but because they believe they're lacking, because they feel they're lacking, because they look at their lives and they go, I'm lacking. Classic attack, I can tell that we've all experienced it by the silence in the room. Number two, still in verse two, the attack on willingness. I kind of call this the what's the point attack. The what's the point attack. Verse 2, will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Well, they weren't aiming to finish in a day. They actually finished this giant task in 52 days, which is pretty spectacular for rebuilding the wall. And as you will know, their stones were somewhat larger and heavier than the ones I was playing with earlier. What's the point? An attack on willingness. Have you got the stomach to make the sacrifice to get the job done? is another way of saying it. He's saying they don't really have the internal guts. Because any building takes sacrifice. It takes some sweat. It takes some giving. It takes some labor. It takes some prayer. It takes some serving. It takes some sacrifice. Is that not true? Building your own family takes sacrifice. Anybody here 
Anybody here had a baby? Okay, got a good response to that. Anybody here who had a baby kept their normal patterns of sleep? Any hands going up? Any hands going up? Anybody here who's had a baby been up half the night? More than once. There you go. There's sacrifice right there. You have a baby, you're not going to have a lie-in for five, six years. I just want to put that on you. <laughs> Forget the lie-in. Listen, we had four babies in quick succession. I can't, you know, we went like eight years without a lie-in. That sacrifice. Don't regret any one of them. Do, but you build a family on sacrifice. You build a wall, you build a city, you build the city of God on laying down your life for the Lord, for one another. By giving, serving, doing the uncomfortable, showing up when you don't feel like showing up. We live in a generation that hungers and desires for community. But actually the only way you can build community is with commitment. And we live in a generation that struggles with commitment. So it's kind of self-defeating, but we have the Holy Spirit in us that helps us to commit and helps us to build and helps us to do community. Yeah, I won't make any difference. I can't be bothered. If you have any of those sort of thoughts, that's this attack. It's the what's the point attack. It's have you got the stomach attack. The attack on willingness. You know what? Every stone counts. Every prayer counts. Every worship time counts. Every declaration of faith from your lips, whether you make it in church, in the bathroom, on the toilet, in the, in the school, it counts. Everything counts. The biggest lie of the enemy is that what you do for Jesus doesn't count. It's a complete pack of lies. He's scared of you. He doesn't want you to open your mouth. He doesn't want you to show up. He doesn't want you to give. He doesn't want you to worship. He doesn't want you to be effective in your relationships with others. He wants you to think it doesn't matter when it really does. I don't know about you, but I think we need focus. I need focus in my life. I need some challenge. I need actually to feel alive. It helps me feel alive when I am giving my best to the thing that I'm called to do. This is a call not to give in, but to stay sharp, to stay on the money, to remember why you're on the planet, to give what needs to be given to achieve the things that God has spoken over your life. And find lots of different ways to keep that clear and keep that focus and keep that passion. Because there are many things that would try and water that down for us and exhaust us and make us lose our edge. When you start to feel that feeling, that's time to do something about it. I know for me recently, I was feeling that feeling. I'm like, I'm going to change this. I'm called, I am chosen. I have unfulfilled prophecy in my life and I want to see it come to pass. So I've given myself every week, I'm having a slot where I am praying and I am fasting because I have all these huge prophecies and some of them are coming to pass but there's more to come. I want to keep my edge. I want to keep my commitment. I want to keep my passion. I don't want to go dusty and dry. I don't want to go, it's all meaningless because it's not true. God chose me. God chose you. He gave you a purpose and a passion. And as you line up with that, nothing in heavens or the earth can stop it happening. 
you have a point. And the things that you do make a difference. The third thing <clears throat> is he tries, so one side is to make you feel small. The next thing he does is to make the task seem insurmountable and unrealistic. Oh boy, is this a biggie. The phrase they use is, will they revive the stones? I mean, they really lay it on. Look at the heaps of rubbish. And they're not just stones, they're burned stones. So? Actually, you can still build with a burned stone. If it was burned wood, you would have trouble. But I mean, they're just laying it on thick here. It's like, look at all the rubbish and look at the stones, look at the job. They're never going to do it. It's too big for them. They're too small and they don't have the guts and they don't have, they don't have the energy. And look at this great, horrible thing they have to do. The enemy loves to amplify and exaggerate the size of the task and the size of the difficulty till we get to the point of being overwhelmed. I would like to suggest if you feel overwhelmed, it's a symptom of this enemy tactic. It's not you being stupid. It's not you being small. It's the enemy trying to make you believe those things are true. We're people of faith. We're actually not people. We are not terribly realistic. You know, if you, if you want to join a group that's realistic, this is the wrong group to join. Fundamentally defined, Christians are people of faith. Faith equals believing for things that you can't do on your own, believing things that don't make sense, believing things that don't add up to the five senses, believing for the impossible, believing to be stretched into realms that you don't see and don't understand. That's what people of faith are. They're not realistic. They actually live in denial. You just have to choose what denial you're going to live in. You can deny reality as you see it here, or you, but it, which is, means you're connected to heaven's reality, or you can deny heaven's reality and say this is reality. You pick. But the enemy wants us constantly to look at what's around us, measure it with our senses, see how big it is, make it feel like it can't be done, because it's just so huge, and there's little you. Nonsense. And I think, I've heard other messages like this, and people will say things like, yeah, the, the, the big issues we have are the gold the, go, the, the gold, the girls, and the glory. Those are the big temptations that hit us. Then people, people what they're saying is it's morality, it, it's the pursuit of riches, and it, it's the self, it's pride that are the things that are a problem. I don't think they're the problem. I think they're secondary, not primary. I think we get into that stuff when we get bored, demotivated, and we forget who we are. When we lose our sense of focus and we're here about a great work, that's when we get bored. And when we get bored, we're looking for other things to fill our tank, to satisfy our lives, and we start to scan around and all oh, suddenly we become vulnerable to other things that are lesser glories, that are lesser beauties, that are lesser satisfactions. 
There's nothing like walking with Jesus. There's nothing like passion for his house. There's nothing like seeing the glory of the Lord fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. There's absolutely nothing like praying for someone and they get healed. Honestly, it's an amazing feeling to see the impact that has on them, their families, their future, their well-being, their livelihood. is astonishing. And I don't see enough of it. So I'm asking him for more rather than going, oh, you know, this is so hard. It's not happening as I like it to happen. Why do I bother? So disappointing. That's giving in. I'm not giving in. Not changing the tune. That's me. Number four, mockery. Oh boy. Verse three. They've got a turn of phrase, these guys, don't they? Yes, what they're building. So they were actually getting on with it. Things were being done. They're like, if a fox jumps on that, it'll fall over. Well, that's probably true of that one. (laughs) It's like, it's insubstantial. They're they're actually doing something substantial, but the the words that are coming are mocking, trying to make them feel like they're stupid and what they're doing isn't really of any value. It's easy to mock people of faith. I asked permission to tell this story. Our first child was to be born, and God had called us to plant a new church. We were 25 years old, first baby on its way. In two weeks' time, we were going to start a new church in a town 20 miles away. We had a due date for the baby, and us being us and me being me, that's when the baby had to come because we'd organized to plant a church two weeks after the baby came. Come, I think it was a Friday night, but it can't be, come Friday night, like, baby's got to come now. We've got the due date. We have stuff planned the next following weekends. I'm at work. And then we have an outreach and we're, we're starting a new church. Baby's got to come. Well, you're laughing already. It gets funnier, yeah. So I'm praying, say, God, this baby's got to come. It's got to come now. It's got to come this weekend. And I found this verse. In the Psalms, it says that the voice of the Lord makes the deer to calf. I'm like, wow. If God can make a deer calf, follow the logic. Yeah, He can make a deer calf. He can make my wife give birth. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calf. So I go down to Teresa and said, you're going to have a baby tonight. And she's, I, I was mocked at that moment. It was like, she, you were making apple pies and she was like, ah. I forget the words, but it, it was not encouragement. You know, pigs will fly. Those kind of, those kind of phrases were, were coming my way. And I'm like, no, this baby's coming. I got that verse, that psalm. I went upstairs. I was pacing around on the landing and in the bedroom. And I was declaring this verse. that The, the, the word of the Lord makes the deer to calf. So you're going to make my wife give birth. You're going you're gonna, to, your waters are going to break. Things are going to happen. I went downstairs. She starts to kneel down to sweep up the flower off the floor. And her work, waters break all over the floor. In five hours, the baby was born. And then all our kids were born within five hours. We kind of set a standard, I think. 
And that was also a breaking of our family line on both sides. Both of us were, had major complications in birth. Our, our, our mothers had major problems giving birth. Something changed for our family history in that moment. But the idea was met with a certain amount of mocking at the beginning. It's huge what these people have to do. I mean, we, we could go around like, we have a vision to own our own building, but you could go around, well, how are we ever going to do that? We've got no money. Well, what does that matter? But you can get into that, well, that was, oh, that's a way big, I mean, we've talked in this church about having a, you know, a no cancer zone. Oh, wow, we can't get a cold healed at the minute. That's mocking. Talking about change of city, those guys can't, can't organize the, chain, the cleaning of the toilets. That's mocking. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying you're saying that, but those are the kind of things that, that can start to come out of people's mouths when they're tuning in to this thing that the enemy wants to broadcast to discourage us. Okay? So mo- mocking happens as well when you separate yourself from the community. So it, the church is them and I'm me rather than it's us. Do, do, do you see? No, we, we are church. This is us. <laughs> I'm running out of time. Well, I've got another illustration, but you have to move on. Any visionary worth is salt is going to appear stupid and later be seen as a genius. Any visionary or all visionaries worth their salt are going to appear stupid. Some of them later are seen as geniuses but it's the visionaries that change the world the people who go after the stuff that seems impossible and says it can be done that actually change the world and we're here to change the world Jesus commissioned us to change the world all right I don't have time to go to the passage but this is in chapter six no sorry this is number five and this is in our chapter in verse 10 in Judah it was said the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing there's too much rubble by ourselves, we'll not be able to rebuild the world. I mean, it's basically internal rumors and gossip. It's a classic enemy strategy. Spread, you know, that actually some of these ideas that we've talked about already then get spread by the people of God themselves. Do, do you see what I mean? It's like somebody starts to believe it and then they start to tell it. So the broadcast is. The broadcast in the people of God is, you know, we don't have the strength. And Proverbs says that whispers and rumors are like delicious morsels. There's something quite tasty about passing on a negative thought. But its overall impact is a loss of momentum and the dousing down of the morale of the whole community. Actually... The morale of a community isn't just in the hands of its leaders, it's in the hands of the whole community and what they choose to believe and choose to speak and declare to one another. Your words to your neighbor are powerful in the sustaining and generating the momentum and morale of the community of God. Again, if we had more time we could develop that idea further, but it's so important that we focus on what God is doing and not on what he isn't doing. Honestly, that is a journey for me to keep reminding myself that look at that, look at that, look at that. And give thanks for the incredible things he's doing. 
and not focus and be sidelined and trapped into the things that are not yet happening. They're, they're the things he's yet to do. They're not necessarily things he's not going to do. Spread the good news. Tell your kids. I'm making a policy of telling my grandkids when we see them one healing story. I want to give them an appetite for the supernatural, not just Minecraft, which is what they thought I was doing with the wall there. I want to give them, it does look a bit like it, I want to give them an appetite. I don't just give them an appetite. I want their faith to be stronger than mine was when I started. I want my ceiling to literally be their floor. So tell the stories to your kids. Tell the good stories to your kids. Your words are powerful. Another way of putting it is be a thermostat, not a thermometer. Thermometers reflect the temperature. They reflect the mood. I say, well, everybody's feeling this. Well, change the feeling. That's a thermostat. Heat the thing up around you. Warm it up. Don't just give in to the lukewarmness that may be around you. Be a thermostat. said there was seven, didn't I? Yeah, we can do this. Six. And this is in chapter six, which you can read later, verses one to eight. The enemy has tried all these tactics that we've just talked about, and they're not working. He's threatened them. He's tried to discourage them, and they're not working. This wall is going up. So he comes up with his next strategy, which is... The temptation to sidetrack. Oh, come and meet me. Come and let's have a discussion. He appears very reasonable. He's trying to pull Nehemiah away from the work at hand. He wants him to lose his focus. And I love the answer. I love the answer. So Sambalat and Geshem sent to me, come and let us meet together at Hakaferim in the plain of Ono. Now in English that should give us a clue right there but they intended to do me harm. They intended to, if you see that in a sentence, don't do it. It says, oh no, so don't do it. But anyway, if that joke needed explaining, it's no longer a joke, let's move on. But they intended to do me harm, and I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? I love the answer. Don't you love the answer? It's like, I'm not going to talk to you, because that would be a distraction. And you know the antidote to a distraction is to know how great the work is that you're about. If you don't value the thing, the building the house, the glorious church, the bringing the kingdom, it's easier to get distracted. The antidote is to have a real appreciation not just of who you are, but what you've been assigned to do. And really this whole series is to communicate to us as a community our beautiful, wonderful, huge, powerful assignment from heaven that we have to steward, build with, increase so that we influence and change a city and a nation. We are about a great work. Finished, not finished. Can you see all that's there? No, there's a lot, a lot of bricks to go up yet. But we are, it's like a jigsaw puzzle with only a few of the corners in. You know, it's that. But the pieces are there. We can see this. We can get it done. But distraction happens when we allow the significance of what we're building to be undermined. 
Oh, we should be doing something different. This won't happen. Number seven. The incitement to fear. I'm trying to think out of these seven is the one that supersedes the others. I think this probably, if there is one, it's this one. The incitement to fear. Actually, what happens is their, their enemies pay people to prophesy falsely. But Nehemiah doesn't know this to start with. And verse 11 of the chapter says, Should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I should go into the temple and live? Which is what they wanted to do. They wanted to go and hide. I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because of Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid. Fear, I think, is probably the greatest weapon of the enemy. We're afraid of the unknown, which means that we then don't move. We can be afraid of failing, so we don't try. We're actually, God encourages us at every step, even if we trip and fall and it doesn't work out. He'd much rather we step out and try than we just stay safe. Fear of failing, so we don't try. Fear of man, what's people going to think of me? produces a paralysis in us so that we live neutral, nice lives, but we never become who he has called and created us to be because we're afraid of what people might think and what they might say. And they're all traps because we're a people of faith and love. We're a people of courage. We've been given a spirit not of fear but of power and of love and self-control. Fear makes you want to hide. Fear makes you hide. Faith makes you stand up. Faith makes you happen. Faith makes you take action. Faith makes you step out. Knowing who you are makes you a world changer. Simple. Don't allow the lies to produce fear. Don't be a source of the lies that produce fear. Be a source of hope and encouragement that produce courage in other people. That's really what encouragement is. It's putting in courage. It's putting in courage. And we all have issues, and we all have challenges, and we all have demands, and we all have shortcomings, and all those things are true, but they are not who we are. Teresa's got a thing on her fridge that says something like, I am not the temptations that I uh, resist. So we are about a great work. You are great people. There are great risks to take, great visions to yet to embrace. Let's not, we've spent enough time this morning talking about what the enemy's trying to do. Let's not give in to any of them, yeah? Let, let's, let's show them the door. Let's give them the Holy Spirit boot out of our brains, out of our feelings. It's funny with our feelings, they have a very interesting way of following our thoughts. And if you're thinking it and feeling it, it's starting to feel more and more real. And so we have to constantly remind ourselves of the reality of heaven, the love of Jesus, the the heart of the Father, the presence of the Holy Spirit. These are all real. 
So let's not give in to attacks on our identity, attacks on our willingness, things that make the job seem too hard. Let's not give in to mockery. Let's not give in to internal rumors and gossip. Let's not give in to the temptation to be sidetracked. And let's not let fear rule our hearts. Fear produces all sorts of unhelpful side effects of control and anxiety that start to get into an environment. If you are fear, it's going to come out of you and around you people will feel that anxiety. Can we stand together? When Nehemiah in chapter 2 describes what he's come to do and describes how God is with him to do it, it says that the people said, what came out of their hearts was, let's arise and build. He, he didn't give them that phrase. It came out of them because they were inspired by the vision and the fact that God was with him and therefore them to get it done. And, and we, we are laying this all before you as, as elders and leaders because we would love to hear a fresh cry from inside you of let's arise and build. We've come so far, we've done so much, so much uh, sacrifice has already happened, so much diligence, so much prayer, so much worship, so, much, so many mistakes, so, but yes, we move forward. But it feels like it's a chance to rise together and say, let's arise and build the next phase, let's do the new thing, Let, let's make this better, larger, longer, let's shout it louder, let's make it, make, make it more, more impact than we've ever had before. And, and, and so we've flagged up the 16th of September we, we just want it to be that kind of a celebration that we're arising we're going to eat together we're going to break bread together we're about a great work you know that don't you we're about a great work we're not tiddling along just trying to do church on a Sunday get the place warm enough and light enough for it to be pleasant we're about changing a nation we're about changing a nation we're about making Christianity better for our kids than what we inherited we're about seeing more miracles than we've ever seen before. We're about influencing our politicians. We're about seeing people's lives transformed to one degree of glory to another. So Father, if you're with me, if you're with us, just put your hand on your heart and I'm just going to pray. Father, you have given us a great vision You've given us a great heartbeat. You've given us great resources. You have given us everything we need. And you're going to keep giving us everything we need. You're going to keep pouring out your resources into our lives. And right now, I just want to make a stand against every lie, every bad feeling, every rumor that the enemy would try to put on us. And I rebuke it in Jesus' name. And I just declare that we will not be distracted for we are about a great work. Do you want to say that with me? We will not be distracted, for we are about a great work. Can we do that together? We will not be distracted. We are about a great work. Let's do it again. We will not be distracted. We are about a great work. One more time with feeling and we're done. We will not be distracted. We are about a great work. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus.